0: Revelation 19. The text that we're going to look at tonight is Revelation 19, verses 7 through 10. But I'd like to begin reading once again in verse 1. And uh, you'll see the reason why we need to tie all of this together. So in Revelation chapter 19, verse 1, it says, And these, after these things, I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments, because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication, and he has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. Again they said, Alleluia! Her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who sat on the throne, saying, Amen, Alleluia. And then a voice came from the throne, saying, Praise our God, all you His servants and those who fear Him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters and as the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give Him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And then He said to me, Write, blessed are those who are called. To the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true sayings of God. And I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, See that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant, and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus, worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the Spirit of prophecy in our initial study of this chapter a few weeks ago I I mentioned that the phrase after these things which you find at the very beginning of verse one after these things allows us to look back over the first 18 chapters and the first six verses of chapter 19 what we studied back then, are a reminder of the centuries of preparation that have gone into getting ready for the wedding ceremony and the marriage supper, referred to in verse 7 as the marriage of the Lamb. So I want to consider again, and I, I know that this is just review from last time, but the phrase, after these things, after these things refer, uh, the phrase refers to these things. First of all, after the vision of the risen Lord Jesus in chapter 1. So after these things means, after what has taken place from the very beginning of the book of Revelation. That vision of the risen Lord Jesus in chapter 1. Secondly, after the revealing of the church age in chapters 2 and 3. Letters that were written to certain churches in Asia Minor that existed then, but they were messages that were for the church throughout all of the church age. Because throughout all of the church age, of course, there were those characteristics of those various churches that were existing at that time that the Lord used to remind us that this is timeless. In other words, it was, it was something that was going to be ministering to us as well. It wasn't just us looking back at, in history to these seven churches and saying, boy, some of those churches were good and some of them were bad. No, what He was saying was... That throughout the whole history of the church, you're going to find these characteristics, both good and bad, in the body of Christ. But there are a couple that we need to emulate, that we need to take hold of. The church of Smyrna, because the church of Smyrna was the suffering church. It was a church that needed to be remembered about because we were going to see a time in the church where, or in the in, in the church age, where the church was going to have to suffer and did suffer and has been suffering persecution for the sake of Christ. But then there was also the church of Philadelphia, and it is the church of Philadelphia that reminds us of the characteristics of the heart of the believer that we are to have toward Jesus. In other words, faithful to the end. A church that was in love with Christ and in love with one another. A church that served Christ and served one another, as well as extended the love of God and of Christ to the people of the world, to receive the knowledge of the truth of Jesus Christ. There were also other churches that had good characteristics, but they were also compromised by some of their bad characteristics. The church of Ephesus was a, was a, was a strong church in its delivery, but it had left its first love. That's much like a lot of the church today. And I'm not going to go back and review every little detail of all of these churches. I'm just giving you examples of the very fact that all of the things that have taken place to the first 18 chapters is being referenced in this phrase, after these things. Take, for instance, the next part. After the rapture and reward of the church in chapters 4 and 5. After chapter 4, you never again hear mention of the church. And in chapters 4 and 5 come the rewards. After the rapture of the church. And a lot of people will say, well, you know, we don't know that the rapture is going to happen before the tribulation or after the tribulation or maybe during the tribulation. We're going to find out some of that tonight is going to be substantiated by the marriage supper of the Lamb. We're going to talk about that a little bit more as we get into it. And then after the wrath of the seven year great tribulation on earth from chapter 6 all the way to th- chapter 18... A large chapter revealing all of the judgments, all of the wrath of God now coming upon an earth that is rejecting Christ. But then, from here on, we're going to see Jesus who will come forth with his wedded bride who is the church. And not only to marry the bride, as it were, but then to... Share the bride to the whole earth when he returns to this earth to rule and reign in Jerusalem for a thousand years. And who will be with him? His bride. So there's, there's a lot yet to come here and the, the great stuff that we need to be prepared for. But we see that there is this great multitude in heaven. We talked a little bit about the worship that was taking place in the first six verses, of this chapter. We're back in heaven now. We're getting another vision of heaven. And in this particular vision, what we're hearing are four hallelujahs that are spoken. Four proclamations of praising God because hallelujah is, is a Hebrew word which means praise the Lord. It is not a suggestion. It is a command. But we see that there's this great multitude in heaven and all the saints... Who's in heaven now? In chapter 19. But all the saints of the church age... From the day of Pentecost until the rapture of the church. There are also a multitude of believers who were justified by faith in Old Testament times. And then there are the martyrs of the great tribulation. Their collective loud voice that resounds with shouts of the four hallelujahs may very well sound like that, that person at a wedding nowadays. Let's say in the modern sense, that person who is at that reception after the wedding, you know, where they announce, you know, the bride and the groom coming in. You know, this is the announcement, you see of the of the arrival of the wedding party to the supper. But all of this has to, it, it has to be centered on the understanding of the Jewish wedding ceremony. Which, if my buttons worked, there it is. The Jewish wedding ceremony is the basis for our understanding of what the marriage supper of the Lamb is all about. It is also, uh, and, and we're not going to go into great, great detail tonight about it, we're going to go into some detail, but if we were to go into a great deal about the, about the Jewish wedding ceremony, we will realize that much of it is, if not the majority of it, is, is typical or symbolic of much of prophecy. And we will find prophetic themes throughout all of the Jewish wedding ceremony. But a lot of preparation can actually go into planning any wedding, right? Those of you that have had to do that. The larger the wedding, the more preparation is required. But then again, if you, you know, the larger the wedding, the more money is required. I think some of you have found that out. It's been said that love may be priceless, but weddings can be expensive. I was reading that on average, U.S. couples spend... Listen to this. On average, U.S. couples spend twenty thousand three hundred ninety-eight dollars for their weddings. Now that's crazy. They must not live in El Paso. I mean, that's that's just really high. It seems. The majority of couples spend between fifteen thousand and (coughs) two hundred ninety-nine dollars, and excuse me, twenty-five thousand four hundred ninety-eight dollars, while their wedding budget is typically fifty percent less than the amount spent. So a lot of credit cards, I suppose, are used. Oh, by the way, this doesn't include the cost for a honeymoon or engagement ring. It doesn't include that. And it, but it does include the cost of the wedding gown. And I've, I mention all that because we're going to talk about the wedding gown in just a brief moment. But let's get focused back on the relationship of the wedding couple. The relationship of the church to Jesus Christ is often compared to that of a bride betrothed and awaiting the return of her bridegroom. Before Jesus went to the cross, He told His closest disciples this. Most of you are familiar with it because it is a passage that I love to quote to you a lot. But in John 14, verse 1, it says, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. Now take that picture. I will will come to you and receive you to Myself, that where I am, there you will be also. That's beautiful, isn't it? But any Jewish person would have caught the reference to the Jewish wedding customs. They would have known it immediately, what Jesus was saying. Consider that in the Jewish wedding system, The first step was the procedure in which the father of the groom arranged the match with the father of the bride, and he would then pay the bride price. This particular step could occur when the bride and groom were still children, and very often the betrothed would not even meet each other until the day of the wedding itself. Interesting, isn't it? Now, the application that coincides with God's program is that God the Father, the Father of the groom, made the arrangement and then paid the bride price. The bride price was the blood of His Son. As it states in Ephesians chapter 5 verse 25, It says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave Himself for her. Gave Himself. Now we know that when we hear that phrase, if we've studied the New Testament as much as we have, we know that giving of Himself meant giving of Himself completely and totally. To death, in other words. And we know that as well from a very popular verse of Scripture. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. He gave Him completely. Again, gave Him over for the purpose of dying for us. That's the price. A price was to be paid. The second step in the Jewish wedding system is known as the preparation which has to do with the period of betrothal or betrothal. This period could last for at least one year but it could last longer if, let's say, As we already mentioned, the arrangement was made when the bride and groom were still children. Now during this period, or during the period of this particular preparation, the bride was prepared to be a fitting wife for her mate. You know, the more I was reading this and studying this, you know, I started thinking about all of the struggles that people have nowadays with quote-unquote old-fashioned ways of doing things or old-fashioned methods, you know. We're so different in the West, you know, when it comes to these these issues of marriage and betrothal. But, but the problem has become is that we've gotten so far away from what the reason was of, in all of this to begin with. Because there's a goal here. We've always said that whatever we study in the Old Testament, it has its relevance to us in the pictures that it gives us of Jesus Christ and His relationship to us. We are thankful that the Jewish people kept these customs. They've also gone through that struggle that people go through today to be more modern. I mean, let's face it. We're facing tremendous and, and, and really deep and awful struggles with, with those who, who are pushing, pushing, pushing this issue of same-sex marriage and whatnot. I mean, it's gotten to the point, you know, where, where all of a sudden you can't, you can't even walk outside the door of your house without having to face some kind of political correctness. And we're we're telling God in all of this, even though people don't want to talk to God about it. But what we're telling God about it is, we don't really care about the way you set things up. Yet he set it up for a purpose. So let's get beyond right now this this idea of what's modern and what's not and what's old-fashioned and understand why God is doing it this way. People will say, well, we don't like the very fact, you know, that the Jews, you know, they'll, they'll have these marriages, and the wife usually walks behind the... You know, don't worry about that. I can assure you of this. Jewish men love their Jewish wives. And they love them deeply. Which is in tremendous contrast, at times, to what we see in, in the Islamic state of affairs. Totally different. I don't want to get into that right now. But I'm just trying to let you know... Let's not draw conclusions until we read and understand why God has set these things up the way He has. So let's go back to this period of preparation where the bride was prepared to be a fitting wife for her mate. It was also the period of time in which she was to be observed for her purity. And again, I need to interject here and say, you know, again, the arguments are going to be, yeah, the woman has to be pure, but the guy doesn't. Oh, no, 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 you're missing the point. The man was just as much under the law to be right and to be pure and to do things right. Again, what is the purpose? So understand. I'm just trying to make sure that we're looking at this the way God wants us to see it. She was observed for her purity, which is why, listen carefully, which is why the betrothal always lasted for a minimum of one year. I think you're letting things work in your mind. For a period of one year, why? To allow at least nine months to pass to make certain that the bride was a virgin at the time of the betrothal. But there's a biblical application. The biblical application to this stage of preparation to the bride of Christ, the church, Is that the bride is now in the process of being perfected for the groom? Now, doesn't that make sense? We talk about it all the time in the church. As a matter of fact, we talk about it because it tells us in the Scriptures. For example, what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 2. He says, For I am jealous for you with godly jealousy, for I have betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. You see how that's all tied in here. There's a spiritual purpose to our marriages. And especially to the marriages of, of the Jewish people as a type of the virgin bride of Christ. And Paul says, I want to present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. There are certainly other verses. We'll come back to some of that later. The third step now. The third step of the Jewish wedding system or customs is that on the wedding day the groom would leave his home and go to the bride's home to fetch her and i use the word fetch purposely he goes to fetch her and as i said i'm using this word because it means more than just getting because people say you know we when we tell a dog go get, go get that you know this bone or we'll get that you know branch you know, go fetch. We always say fetch, right? But the word fetch means to, to, it means to get, it means to draw, and it means to procure. But it means more than that. It means more than that because in essence, it is a snatching away. The whole idea is, I'm going to come when you don't know I'm coming, so you got to do what? You have to be ready. Because I could come at any moment. Why did they set it up this way? Because it is a picture of Jesus coming to take us away. To snatch us. But no one knows. So you have to be ready. If it was already scheduled... Let's say at the end of a tribulation period, the middle of a tribulation period, you can count and say, oh, He's coming in a couple of weeks because that's so many days. Do you see the importance of saying, you don't know when I'm coming, so be ready. I've gone to prepare a place for you and when I return, I'm going to come and gather you together unto myself as one, my bride, so that where I am, there you will be also. So he snatches away. It's a word that is used with clarity in First Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 and 17. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with a trumpet of God. There's some sense, and we're not going to go into the great detail about it right now, but there's some sense that those things happen when this, when this bridegroom goes to get his bride. Remember in Matthew chapter 25, it talks about the ten virgins? Five were ready and prepared their, 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 their lamps, and the other five weren't prepared? Gotta be ready for that shout. And the dead in Christ will, li- will rise first, and then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up, will be fetched. Caught up. Harpazo in the Greek. Caught up and snatched away. This is wedding. This is the wedding ceremony. Caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, I will come and gather you unto Myself so that where I am, there you may be also. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. The application to the fetching of the bride of Christ is the rapture of the church. And we have to be ready. For He can come at any moment. By the way, the bride didn't know, as I said, the day or the hour her husband would call on her, so she waited in anticipation, always being ready, listening for the sound of the ram's horn. What do they call it? The trumpet. Ah. Trumpet. Of God. Now, she did know something, though. I, I have to tell you, she knew something. She knew the season. She didn't know the day or the hour, but she knew the season. You know, there's wedding seasons, too. We, we, all, you know, we, get, we see marriages happen all, all year long. I mean, every, you know, some of us were married in December and others and and whenever, but there's a season. Sometimes it's like in the summer, right? June. June is for brides and all of that. But can you imagine if everybody got married in June? Oh, it'd be a terrible month. We'd all go poor giving anniversary gifts at the same time to everybody. So, but there's a season. And it's an interesting thing that that she knew the season because It was usually after, listen carefully, it was usually after the harvest. After the work was done of gathering together all of the sheaves of food and and of grain and all. Then you know, okay, the harvest has come. Does this sound significant to you? Yeah, it sounds significant because there's a great harvest that is happening until when? Until Jesus comes. There's going to be one person. We don't know who it is. Only God knows. We'll be the last one before Jesus said, okay, we got them all together. Let's go and get them. The harvest is done. The harvest is passed. At that point, in essence, for the church, for the bride of Christ, That doesn't mean that the, the others don't participate. The ones who get saved during the tribulation, no, they're, they're part here. They're, they're, they're here. They're a part of this too. They're in heaven. But the fact is, the harvest is significant prophetically when it comes to the wedding and it comes to the marriage supper. There's a fourth step. The fourth step is this. The Jewish ceremony was conducted in the home of the groom. The ceremony itself was always in the home of the groom. Only a few people, usually the immediate families and two witnesses. Does that sound familiar? Two witnesses? Only the immediate family and two witnesses were invited to come in and observe the wedding ceremony itself. So where is that? It's in heaven. It's right here in chapter 19. Because that's where everybody is. And not everybody's invited, at least for the ceremony itself, because that was what the Jewish, ceremony, the Jewish wedding custom was. But the biblical application of this fourth step to the relationship of the church as the bride of Christ is that there will be a ceremony in heaven, and the few that will be invited to the ceremony are the few that are already in heaven. And only those who have been resurrected will be able to participate in the wedding ceremony. Now, whereas only a few were invited to the Jewish wedding ceremony, many more were invited to the marriage feast, to celebrate the marriage of the Son. You know, this has really changed my mind a lot about weddings. To some extent, because I used to say, oh, those people, you know, they'll they'll get an invitation to the wedding and they only come to the reception and to the dance. Right? But they don't come to the church where they should come. They, They should come. The church should be where everybody comes. And those who don't like to dance, they don't have to go. But yeah, more people go to the dance or the reception, you know, they like to party. <laughs> Beginning to wonder now, see, because I thought, isn't it interesting? In the Jewish wedding ceremony, it's just the family. That makes it more precious, doesn't it? But then you invite everybody and say, come, look, we want you to see the wedding, the the the, the, the wedding couple. They're so pretty and clean and shiny and bright and happy. And you can come and enjoy this and celebrate. So, as we read deeper into chapter 19 of Revelation, we see the marriage feast or the supper of Jesus, the Lamb of God. And we're going to talk about this later, but think about the fact that when Jesus comes with ten thousands of His saints, the idea though is that He comes with His bride. And they come to Jerusalem and He reigns there for a thousand years. Everything changes on earth. But everybody will be invited to come all the nations to come to see the bridegroom and his bride. Now here's another significant thing, and we'll just mention it very quickly. On on, on a regular Western type, uh, you know, modern wedding, who really gets all the attention? The bride. In her long white gown dress, you know, and just bouncing up and down. And everybody's, oh, look at the bride and the pictures of the bride. But it's not so much the bride until after the focus of the wedding is the groom who went to get his bride and bring her to his home. He's the focus. Wouldn't you say it's better that Jesus gets to focus in this? But when He presents His bride, everyone will say, that's the bride. And we will see the bride. Pure. As Jesus wants that bride to be. More on that later. Let's look at our text now. It's verses 7 and 8. Uh, let, let us be glad, it says. And rejoice and give Him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. It's time. The marriage of the Lamb has come, and His wife has made herself ready. Interesting phrase. We'll talk about that in a moment. (laughs) And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. I, I, I mentioned the gown. Very important. A major emphasis in verses 7 through 10 is on the fine linen garment that the bride is wearing. I have to tell you, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, it's your wedding garment. It's your wedding garment and it will be a beautiful garment. It is significant that the angel remarks that his wife, as we see in verse 7, let me go back there. His wife, the last two lines, his wife has made herself ready. Y'all see that? It brings up a question. I'm going to move on so we can be ready for the next set. But it brings, brings up a question. And it brings up this concern. Is not salvation entirely of grace apart from works? Why is it then stated that she has made herself ready? Think about the question. Why is it stated that she has made herself ready if salvation is entirely of grace apart from works? So first of all, let's begin with this understanding. It is explained here using the powerful analogy Of clothing. How many times have we talked about the Apostle Paul writing about putting on the Lord Jesus Christ, or putting on righteousness, as as if putting on a garment? It isn't our garment; it isn't ours that we made, you know, that we fashioned. Right? We we didn't do it ourselves. It is the righteousness of God and of Christ that we put on. It's not our righteousness; it's His, in essence. But I want you to consider how important that is in in this case, because the lost and hopeless condition of the human race is also compared to clothing. It's compared to clothing. Listen to this description, if you will, from the prophet Zechariah. And I'd like for you to turn to Zechariah chapter 3. Zechariah chapter 3. And verses 1 through 5, I want you to listen. And read with me. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, who we believe is Christ, and Satan standing at his right hand to oppose him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now, Joshua was clothed with filthy garments. Now stop and think. Go back just a second to verse 1. He showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to oppose him. Joshua as the high priest would have been wearing very clean white garments, white linen garments. There was no doubt that he would have been wearing that. But then we see this opposition being rebuked by God. And then we see that it says that Joshua was clothed with filthy garments. Isn't that interesting? And was standing before the angel. And then he answered and spoke to those who stood before him saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, "See." I have removed your iniquity from you and I will clothe you with rich robes. Now, I don't want to go into all the details of what was going on here. But I'm trying to just point out the, the understanding of the, of the analogy of the clothing here. Because if you were to look... Oh, I haven't finished reading yet. Let's read verse 5. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head. And they put the clothes on him and the angel of the Lord stood by. Okay, so if you were to look upon Joshua then, this high priest, uh, Joshua who was Arubel, also served in this this time of Zechariah. But if you were to look upon Joshua, you would have seen him in his magnificently priestly garments. They were elaborate, exquisite garments. The high priest would would look splendid as, as he performed the tasks of the temple, the whole idea is he had to be clean, both his body, so he would go to the mikvah, the bath, and ceremonially cleaning himself before they would put on this very clean garment of linen. So he was splendid in what he was doing his, while he was doing his tasks in the temple. But he didn't look that way to everyone. Verse 3 tells us that Joshua was clothed in those filthy garments. Now the word for filthy, and, and I hope you have a good stomach today, but the word for filthy in Hebrew means smeared with human excrement. Smeared with human excrement. Did Joshua happen to fall into a sewer while he was rushing to the temple? Did he fall into sewage because he was hurrying up too much to get to the temple? Why would he enter the temple in such stained and spoiled garments? Well, he didn't. But Adam did. Adam did. Why? Because it was Adam who disobeyed God and brought sin upon all mankind, all humans. What does the Scriptures tell us? All have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God. Every person born from Adam and Eve on were born in sin, stained with sin. So we are being shown in this passage the same man in the same garments from two perspectives. You see, from the natural earthly perspective, his garments were fine. But from the supernatural heavenly perspective, his garments were filthy. And, and, you know, you could go ahead and and look at the the Jewish people of the time. How many times and how many prophets were sent to them for them to repent of their sins and turn back to God. Time and time and time and time again. This is what the work of the prophets uh, was. So here's the thing. As high priest, Joshua represented and he stood for all of the Jewish people. He stood for the, for all of them, but even their finest high priest was filthy. you know there's reference to that in the book of Hebrews. It talks about the fact that there were high priests that you know would offer sacrifices daily, offer sacrifices yearly for the sake of the of the people, but even they had to offer for themselves. Jesus never had to offer a sacrifice for himself because he was sinless. he was the only pure one who could not only be the one who offered as high priest the sacrifice, but was himself the sacrifice, you see. So as high priest, Joshua, or actually Yehoshua, represented and stood for the the Jews, but even he was filthy because he was human. But this Joshua can also be seen as our representative. Because in Isaiah 64, verse 6, and this is a... This is a verse that many of us are familiar with. But we are all like an unclean thing. And all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf. And our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. We are all like an unclean thing. Simply because we were born in the flesh. Born into sin. David talks about it in the Psalms. when he talks about being born in iniquity. The entire human race is filthy when seen from the supernatural and heavenly perspective. But when we are saved, God does for us what He did for Joshua. God does for us what He did for Yehoshua, the high priest. He exchanges our garments for His own. He exchanges our garments for His own, which is a robe of righteousness. Go back to Isaiah 61. In other words, go back to chapter 61, verse six or verse 10. I'm sorry, verse 10. And it says there, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for He has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom, listen, as a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. As the bride adorns herself with the jewels. Knowing this, then why does the angel say in Revelation 19 verse 7, His wife has made herself ready. Okay, let's look at at verse 8 again. And to her it was granted to be arrayed, notice, arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Now, if we refer back to Isaiah 61 verse 10, we were granted or given a spiritual robe of righteousness. Did any of you earn it? Did any of us earn it? No, not at all. Did any of us make it? Not at all, because there wouldn't be any material on this earth that we could make it with. Everything is stained by the sin. I mean, this whole earth is cursed, in essence. (coughs) Excuse me. So if we refer back then to what we just read in Isaiah 61, verse 10, we're granted or given this special robe of righteousness when we receive Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior... Afterwards, we have the privilege, listen carefully, afterwards we have the privilege of adorning our robes by our righteous acts as His saints or set-apart people. We don't earn or add to our salvation. You all can see that, right? You can understand that. We don't earn our salvation. Never have, never will. We simply earn rewards which will adorn our robe. The evidence of our salvation and faithful service to the Lord. The bride of Christ is adorned. Because we, in our salvation, are serving and have served the Lord. Now, what takes place after the rapture of the church is the judgment seat of Christ. Now, this is very important, too. It it coincides with all of this. What takes place after the rapture of the church is going to be the judgment seat of Christ. We call it the Bema seat of Christ, where the believers will be rewarded for the work they have done. Now, I'm going to reference uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 in just a moment. The first part of it, verses 1 through 10, which I want you to read later. We don't have time to go through that tonight. But I do want you to go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Because what Paul tells us there in 2 Corinthians 5 verses 9 and 10 is this. He says, Therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to Him, to Christ. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. That's the Bema seat of Christ. That each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So we will receive for the good. And what 1 Corinthians chapter 3 tells us is that whatever bad has been done, that's just going to get burned up. Because in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, it talks about six things. Wood, hay, stubble, Gold, silver, and precious jewels. Six things. Wood, hay, stubble, gold, silver, precious jewels. If you put all of those six things in a fire, what comes out? The wood, hay, and stubble gets all burned out. The silver, gold, and the precious jewels remain because the fire can't destroy them. What it does is purify them, and that becomes the reward upon which we adorn the garments of the body of Christ. So, let's see. Yes, we've read that. So God will put our works through the fire and while not losing our salvation because 1 Corinthians 3 also tells us that we do not lose our salvation through this process. If some of our works are done out of the wrong motivation or with a wrong heart, these things will be burned up and there will be the loss of those particular things. But then again, wood, hay and stubble then last. Uh, so there will be the loss of rewards pertaining to those particular works, but no loss of salvation. All right, let's close now, verses 9 and 10, so we can be ready for next week. And then he said to me, Right, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. The call has come forth. It's come forth. It's... It's been there. Come. All you weary and heavy laden. Come. You who are thirsty, come. You who are hungry, come. You who are broken hearted, come. The invitation, come. Respond to it. Respond to Jesus. Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true sayings of God. No matter what we go through in this life, no matter what we're going through right now in our lives, if you've been called, you're blessed. No matter how how many trials you have had up to this time in your life, Sometimes we think, Lord, when are these trials going to end? When are these struggles ever going to stop? Rather than focus our attention on the troubles, let's focus our attention on the one who has called us and said, I will be with you through every storm, through every trial, through every circumstance, through every flood, through every fire that you go through. I'm going to take you through it. I'm going to be with you through it and I'll take you through it. Focus your attention upon Him because He's the bridegroom who said, I've come and I'm going to come to rescue you and take you away. I'm going to gather you to Myself and where I am there you will be also and you will be out of this danger. Isn't that encouraging? That He's called us and He's calling us still. And He won't stop calling until the day that He comes. And even after that, those who have heard the message but didn't respond still have the opportunity. Just as Israel did the same. They went into their, they went into their captivities. Those, that's where, that was judgment for Israel. They were kicked out of Jerusalem. They were kicked out of the land because they disobeyed their God. Yet God restored them to the land. Because He loved them. And He said, I will be with you always. He said, I'm not going to leave you nor forsake you. But I am going to judge you. And I am going to chasten you. But I do so because I love you. And I care for you. These are the true sayings of God. Because you see... It isn't a pie-in-the-sky theology that we need to be concerned with. We need to be careful in, the, in thinking that, you know, if my life is not going right, then there must be something wrong with my life. No! God said I'll be with you through the roughest of times. And there'll be enough rough times in this life. I wish we had an opportunity to talk directly to some of our brothers and sisters in China or in other places in the the world, in Iran, where there are Christians today suffering for the gospel, or in Sudan, where there are Christians today suffering even to the death for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we could ask them, how do you do it? They're able to do it, not by their strength, not by power of mind, but by the Spirit of God. They understand what they're going through. We struggle with making payments to the water company sometimes. Then we think it's the end of the world. Well, let's get certain things right in our lives and we'll get back to where we need to be. But, but, but let's not think that you, know, that, you know, the only way that we can really measure ourselves as Christians is because we're, we're getting everything we want. It's not, that's not the measure. There are a lot of rich people today who don't even care about God not what you have in your bank accounts is what you have in the account in heaven where our treasure is that's where our heart is and Jesus said our treasure needs to be in heaven and then in verse 10 it says and I fell at his feet in worship, to worship him speaking of the angel and, and the angel said to him see, see that you don't do that I, I'm a fellow servant of, of your brethren who have, have the testimony of Jesus and, and you know John was just overwhelmed with everything he was seeing. So he probably thought this was some characteristic of Christ before him. But the guy says, no, 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 not me. That's a simple thing, not, not to worry about. Some, some people make a big deal about it. No, it just, he opened his eyes. He was overwhelmed by everything going on. The guy says, yeah, don't worship me. But this is what he tells him at the end of it. He says, worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the Spirit Of prophecy. Two very quick things before we end here tonight. In Jewish culture, the marriage supper was the best banquet or party that anyone could ever have. In the Jewish culture, it always was an occasion of tremendous joy. Now, that's the wedding. When we were in Israel, I think it was the last time when I was in Israel. Um, we were in we were in uh, in Jerusalem in in the uh, the Jewish por- uh, uh, the Jewish uh, section and uh, the Jewish quarter they call it and there was a, a celebration it was a it was a bar mitzvah celebration the coming of age of a thirteen year old boy. And they were carrying them and they were playing music and they invited us to come. We all got together and we were taking pictures and and rejoicing with them. You know, because they were just throwing them up in the air and they were doing all kinds of stuff. We were all taking pictures and being a part of it. They were just having a good time. You remember that? That was great. Uh, That was joyous. Think of that ten times greater for a wedding ceremony. It was a, it's always an occasion of tremendous joy. According, by the way, according to rabbinical teaching, obedience to the commandments was suspended during a wedding celebration if obeying a commandment might lessen the joy of the occasion. I'm not sure that was a good thing, <laughs> but uh, nonetheless, some rabbis taught that. But on that day, on that day of the marriage supper of the lamb, everyone will see the church for what she really is, and that is the precious bride of Jesus Christ. And lastly, the true spirit of prophecy, as it says here, for the testimony of Jesus, the witness and testimony of Jesus, is the spirit of prophecy. Listen carefully. The true spirit of prophecy always shows itself in bearing witness to Jesus. Always. When we talk about prophecy, when we talk about the things that are yet to come, who are we really talking about? We're talking about Jesus. I'm not looking, I've, I know I've said this many times, I'm not looking for the Antichrist, I'm looking for Jesus Christ. Because he said, look up for your redemption draws near. Keep looking for me because I'm coming again. This is part of the marriage celebration. Well, actually it's part of the wedding custom So any teaching of prophecy that takes our minds and our hearts away from Him, Jesus, is not being properly communicated. And then also think of this. It means that prophecy at its very heart is designed to unfold the beauty and the loveliness of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And I hope and pray that each and every one of you has heeded the call of the marriage supper of the Lamb. Come, all you who are weary, come. All you who are brokenhearted, remember that Jesus said, I have come to heal the brokenhearted. I've come to set at liberty the captive. He has set us free to worship Him and to love Him forever as His bride. Shall we pray?